presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. The conversation today might be the most important one we've had on the, on, on the Digest to date. The topic is housing affordability, an issue plaguing Colorado communities, be it from the mountains to the plains to the various parts of the state. It's a big issue. My guests are Common Sense Institute's 2021 Terry J. Stevenson Fellows, Evelyn Lim and Peter Lafari. Jointly, they have just authored a new report, which is the culmination of months of work and stakeholder conversations. The Terry Stevenson Fellowship is an annual project at CSI designed to bring two policy matter experts to the table, and they have different backgrounds, and they have different viewpoints. We want to present both sides of the issue if we possibly can and come down to some conclusion that they both can agree upon. They write this joint paper tackling one of the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado's population growth, affordable housing. You may recall the 2020 fellows, Henry Sauvignet and Ben Stein, studied the topic of transportation, and many of their ideas were part of the recent transportation legislation passed by the state in Senate Bill 260. This year, the focus of the fellowship turned to housing affordability. You may have read recent articles in local newspapers about the incredible impact of affordable housing in the mountain communities at the present time. We also have it here on the plains. And while this issue has been a persistent problem, we certainly could not have fully anticipated just how bad it would get between when this project started and where we are today. Housing and shelter is a basic human need, and with affordability crisis we face, the future of many families and the competitiveness of our state are truly at stake. This is why the conversation is so important. I am thrilled to be joined by Peter. And Evelyn, Peter Lafari is the Executive Director of Maker Housing Partners, the Adams County Housing Authority. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Earl. It's my pleasure to be here. Evelyn Lim is the former Regional Region 8 Director at the U.S. Housing and Urban Development and is now the Director of Policy and Research at the American Cornerstone Institute. Evelyn, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me, Earl. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to our discussions today, the issue of affordable housing in our state, with both of you and hearing your unique perspectives. Before we get into the details of the report, let's get a little more information about both of you. Each of your backgrounds is, uh, is unique. And in the process to approach this report, Peter, I'll start with you. Your firm is directly in the business of affordable housing at Adams County Housing Authority involved in both ownership and development. Tell us a little more about uh, Maker Housing Partners and your experience in the affordable housing industry. Happy to do so, Earl. At Maker, we own, operate, and develop affordable housing throughout Adams County and provide anti-poverty solutions for Adams Countyites who need support in meeting those basic needs. And so I've come to the industry by somewhat of a circumference route, uh, started out in uh, supporting national security as a, as a contractor, and really view affordable housing as national security. And I think in your intro, you highlighted the reasons why. Uh, so many of our brilliant uh, Colorado minds are lost. Uh, they're lost to 
uh, eviction, uh, the prison uh, school-to-prison pipeline, and be able to provide the safety and security of a home allows uh, our Coloradans to dream big and to chase their version of the American dream, and that's why I'm in this business. And so it's not just about bricks and sticks. It's about providing an opportunity for lives to live a vibrant, productive life and uh, contribute to our local economy, uh, our national economy, and we do that through creating opportunities for them to have that stability. So we own and operate and develop these housing uh, communities. We work in tandem with local governments, uh, with the community at large, uh, and we're really trying to do our best to put Coloradans in a position to succeed. Now, do the Coloradans own those uh, housing units that you uh, build, or do they rent from you? They rent from us. We utilize what's called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. Section 8. We do administer Section 8 as well. Uh, so we, we, we have about a $17 million program in Adams County, helping over about 3,500 folks to include their dependents. Uh, we also provide uh, services in food justice. Uh, we help individuals stay in their homes. Uh, and we really act as an anchor institution in a hub-and-spoke model to help folks refer over to institutions that do the work that we don't do directly. But, yes, correct. And how many units do you have and how many people are occupying them? So we have over 2,000 units, um, and we have, uh, gosh, over 15,000 folks living in them to include their dependents. Okay, thank you. Evelyn, you've been engaged in many different areas of policy, both federally and in Colorado, and most recently worked for several years at HUD, focused on affordable housing. Tell us a little more about you and your background. Yeah, well, um, I did spend the last two years as the regional administrator for housing and urban development. Uh, We were here in Denver, Colorado, but I covered the uh, six states of Region 8, which is the Rocky Mountain region, Colorado, Utah, Montana, uh, Wyoming, and North and South Dakota. So through that, I I had a really great perspective of the region, Um, worked with Peter. That's how I met Peter, because we provide, obviously, the funding for Section 8 and and oversee the public housing authorities at HUD. I also, over the last year, had worked on a lot of uh, pandemic response for HUD. So the uh, CARES Act funding that was passed by Congress I um, helped coordinate the distribution of that throughout the U.S. And then I left at the end of the administration, and as you mentioned, I'm working for uh, Dr. Ben Carson, who was our secretary of HUD. Um, I am with him over at the American Cornerstone Institute. And so we are a public policy think tank uh, and really dedicated to ensuring that, that civil discourse returns to our public policy uh, uh, conversations in the United States. So this fellowship was really um, right up our alley, and I'm so thankful that uh, you all had asked us to be a part of it. So really, you, this is kind of a carrying on of your current position with the former Secretary of HUD, Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson. Sure. We started at 501c3. Absolutely. It was, it's, it's looking beyond housing, so we are looking at our four cornerstone principles that our nation was founded on, Uh, life, liberty, community, and faith. And so um, what were our public policy uh, interests will surround what the founding of our nation. Our model is that we are trying to take these big policy ideas outside of Washington, D.C., and communicate that to the rest of the nation on, on why they're important 
and um, how we can really affect what's happening in D.C. through grassroots efforts. Well, hopefully during this conversation we'll have a chance to see how uh, successful big Washington ideas are out here with us local folks. <laughs> well, I and I really enjoyed this project because it is really taking, Peter and I really talked about policy ideas, but we, we came out with some uh, real practical solutions that we think we can implement um, and, you know, Dr. Carson likes to talk about we're not just a think tank, but we're a do tank. And that's that's what we really want to do. There's there's a lot of policy ideas out there, but really the execution of it is what matters. And so through this report, we we were glad to take a deep dive into housing because it's so um, it affects all of us here in, in Colorado so much. And so really excited to talk to you about it and talk about some of those solutions. Well, let's get started. Throughout the pandemic, the housing market has faced some unique challenges, and now as the economy reopens, it is especially stressed. A recent report from the Denver Association of Realtors found that in May this year, there's a record low number of active listings, and vacant lots are starting to be auctioned to the highest bidders. This issue is front of mind for everyone. Peter, what do you see as maybe the one or two biggest drivers of the affordability crisis we see today here in Colorado? Supply. Without a question, supply. Everything that we're dealing with now is an exasperation of our systemic drivers that have precluded the development of housing in our state and in our nation, frankly, uh, really over the last 20 to 30 years. Housing development is the literal incarnation of change. And as humans, we are naturally, you know, fear adverse. And so to have housing development uh, impact you in your backyard, in your home, in your community, it, it elicits very extreme emotions. And what we've come together and what we've realized is that rather than shame and blame those emotions, we need to get to the core of, of how we function as humans, celebrate who we are, our differences, talk through them, and then really use logic to help us overcome that fear-based emotion. And so we haven't been building enough, Earl. Uh, and it's the fact that we're not building enough, while so many folks come to our great state uh, for the tremendous opportunities within our economy, the lifestyle, uh, the wanderlust that leaves folks here, all the reasons that I came uh, and many before me are the reasons that we're here. And it's difficult for us to keep pace. And the construction value chain that creates housing uh, is one of the last industries in the world, frankly, uh, that has uh, really modernized. So you can close your eyes and, and you can you know, uh, be on a job site and then open them up and you could be 20, 30 years ago. Um, there have been some, some advancements. It's difficult to break through them in our current construct, and that's what we discuss in the report. Interesting. Evelyn, what would you add, if anything? Well, I, I'll just add that uh, we looked at the entire state and uh, for this report. So there's a, a little bit of a different dynamic happening in our rural and mountain towns. Um, and, you know, there's good things and bad things. I'll say one of the great things is, you know, we see a lot of collaboration happening uh, where people are just rolling up their sleeves just because they know they have a housing shortage and thinking of innovative ideas to get through that. Uh, one thing that we didn't delve too much into is just the dynamic of short-term rentals and how that affects the mountain resort communities. Uh, one of our interviewees told us that in their community, one out of uh, three homes was take, was available to a renter, um, and that other homes were being taken up 
by short-term rentals, which constrains our supply. So that is something I think it's happening in the front range as well, but really in the mountain resort towns, that's, that's one of the big drivers. I want to challenge both of you. Supply. I'm a finance guy, okay? And when there's short supply, I've never ever known the markets not to try to meet demand. So why is the demand not being met? I mean, it is it supply and demand, economics. I see the two lines crossing. Where's the pricing issue here? What's going on? Yeah, great question, Earl, and thank you. And we tackle that in the report. You know, housing is, is hyper-local, right? And uh, every locality has differing building codes. We, we lack a, a uniform building code here in the state, uh, different zoning requirements, uh, design standards. And so the value chain of construction development is, is, is highly disaggregated, um, extremely project-specific. Oh, and then, by the way, a very, very much politically uh, heightened, right? The, and so every project takes a very long time to bring to market. That just says dollars to me. You're it, just it's telling true. me it's more cost associated with building something. But then again, I may be wrong. No, I doubt it, but go ahead. No, you're, there's definitely a correlation. So what happens is, is that unlike, let's say, the auto industry, where we've experienced significant labor hour productivity gains, we've we've not done that, and so we. But that's not what you just said. What you said that there's a lot of upfront barriers. Oh, yeah. That has nothing to do with labor productivity. That has everything to do with, hey, how much does it cost for me to start building, a place, and how much does it take of time and material to get people to approve what I'm trying to do. So help me out. Is that sure, is that sure. a, begun to be a big contributor, or is it any different than in the past? The way that we unlock land or that we allow land to be developed is extremely um, kind of politically and, and, and local zoning driven. And so we make the amount of land that's available to develop housing, um, uh, we, we, we constrain that, right? So it's not in a situation where we can just simply meet the need of the market. And so what happens is if you look at that value chain, as I mentioned, it's the land availability is lacking. There's a scarcity of land, which drives cost higher, as you mentioned, with a cost situation. Then what you're able to do uh, is, is impacted by, um, by community concern, right? So if you can legally develop land, um, you have to still go in front of, if you need a rezone, you need to go in front of uh, a planning board, a planning commission. You can receive approval for that, and then you can go in front of city or, or county commissioners, depending on the location, and there could be uh, changes, even if the development has been approved. All of that drives time, that drives cost, and that cost is always passed on to the end user, which is either the individual home buyer or the renter. I, just forgive me for being relatively simple, Evelyn, but I, I just add up in my own mind the time he's talking about, and it seems to me that time doesn't matter if it's a low-cost low house or medium-cost or high-cost house. You've got this inordinate amount of time that Peter used the word we have, and it's, I'm wondering, aren't we just creating our own problem here by the we that is creating all of these these entry point costs that we have and that those entry point costs have to be shared in the house housing costs. So if it's a lower cost house, it could be a significant part of what the total cost of that house could be unless you've got them really crowded together. So where do we 
fall into this formula of causing this problem that we may have in providing affordable housing? Well, you're absolutely right. There's there's a tension there, um, and we this is one of the things that we thought would make our report really unique. Nobody's really getting at the psychological aspects of this whole process, which really involves not just the development, but involves the community. And so, you know, we've heard the term NIMBY, not in my backyard, versus the YIMBYs, the yes in my backyard. And, you know, part of our uh, premise was you could be a NIMBY one day and a YIMBY the next day. It just depends on, you know, the where the project is. And so, you know, we want to get beyond that construct because uh, what people need to understand is that we're just not developing housing enough, and everybody suffers under under that. And so how do we get beyond and allow Coloradans to understand that um, we're housing Coloradans, whether it is, you know, affordable, whether it is middle market, We've gotten ourselves into a, a housing deficit. We have a shortage of housing. We can't keep up with the number of people that are moving here. Where's the real shortage? Is it at the $3 million house? No. No. Oh, is it at the million dollar house? Right. Well, or, and. Or is it at the $750,000 house? Right. Well, right. I'm driving lower. Yes. So are we at the starter house that, and that area is where we have a shortage? Absolutely. It's and what the, is that price? It's the starter home. And, well, the, the Denver Association of Realtors, the single-family detached house average in May of 2021 was over $700,000. That is that, that can't be a starter. That's not a starter, but that's the average. Okay. And so regardless of kind of where you are on that spectrum – it is impossible for, and, and we've heard all the stories where people are bidding up to $100,000 over list price. You know, you, you kind of wonder who are these people who are able to afford these cash buys like that. And those are people who are moving out from, you know, different coasts who have a lot more, um, maybe they sold their house in California that's, you know, over a million dollars and they're buying here or an institutional buyer. And so I think, you know, getting back to what you said originally is time is money. And so the longer this process is drawn out, the more it, and more it gets expensive to build in Colorado. And so part of what we try to get to is the process. How do we fix the process to make sure that um, voices are still heard, but that we are allowing development to move forward in a rational and uh, reasonable way. And you don't care what the price range is in development? Well, of course we do. We talk about a lot about affordable and how we can build affordable. Okay. But part of, I think, my premise, and I'll, I won't speak for Peter, but is that we just haven't been building enough of the middle market to too affordable at all. So if we can at least catch up to where we needed to, we need to be, then I think that prices will level out more reasonably. Right now, because there's such a high supply, no demand, prices are are out of reach high for a lot of co- supply. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Peter, I want to I want to push back here on a second. Sure. So we're talking about we need more of affordability, which is kind of the medium home price to beginners. What I heard Evelyn say. What size of a market is that? How much of a shortage is there in that? And what are you suggesting we do about it? What's the report suggest we do about it? 
Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll start to say, you know, all types of development exist within the same, you know, kind of delivery system. Let's call it the value chain, as, as we've been referring to it. So what benefits missing middle development is going to benefit. You can't, if we, if we can't build at all, we can't build affordable housing, right? So what I, I focus on folks earning 60% of area median income to below, right? To folks earning 30% or below. And so the pressures that, that I face right. and 60% challenges. 60% of what income, property, what level? Of so, so the, the um, area median income is about 101000 for a family of four so you, you in the Denver market. 60% Correct, or below, or below. And so, you know, we, we utilize the tax credit program, as I mentioned. And, but I still have to go through, if I need a rezone, I have to go through the same rezoning uh, process. I still have to go through the same design standards and review process. When you're talking about houses that are less than $350,000, $300,000, and when you're talking about that level. Correct. So let's Correct. just make sure everybody understands. You're talking sixty to thirty, and you're talking about down to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the thirty thousand dollar a year income person. How can they even afford that? But that's let's, why let's just go with your example of what yeah. you're doing. So that's why we we focus on uh, multifamily rental housing, right? And and we work in tandem. Uh, with our members, we call them members as opposed to clients or tenants, but we work in tandem with them so that they can become housing ownership ready. Then they can move into what we call as an option as, as community land trusts. So there has to be certain type of interventions on the demand side, as we talked about earlier, to be able to support the incomes and the affordability uh, amounts, as you just identified. But what we're saying is okay, that... let's be clear, Peter. Hmm. So you're, in effect, saying we can build something that they can't afford personally, but we may have to have some help from other sources, the government, so that they can move in and eventually take ownership. Is that what I hear you saying? So I think there's, there's, there's multiple markets, and this is what's so challenging about the housing, the housing challenge, right? We're really struggling for folks that are living at the levels that I serve. Right. There's, no, you know, there's just not enough units. And what happens is, as these downward pressures happen, from middle market, market rate, right, you know, folks that are buying homes in the 607, because of that scarcity and because of the demand amount and the lack of supply, folks are paying fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 over list, right? And so it pushes these pressures down. So what happens is the market responds to that, and we're losing this stock that has always been kind of no, what is called organically that. affordable. We understand that. But your, your study has said, okay, what do we do about it? Yes. So – Take a shot at it, both of you. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? We have to tackle the way we zone and entitle land, how long it takes for the process to work its way through. We have to unlock the ability to be able to create greater densities, right? We have to look at uh, efficiency gaining and drivers so that folks can move through that. Right now it takes about 18 months, uh, from dream to, to ground opening, right? Even longer at times. Uh, that's just to get to ex- groundbreaking, excuse me, Earl. And so, um, as we mentioned, time is money. And so then we have all these interventions throughout the process. So we create these uh, processes, policies, procedures, and then we change the goalposts mid-period. So we create and have recommended policies uh, that will allow us to move through the process faster create greater efficiencies of cost, and hopefully we have a, a big idea that we think can 
really kind of upend the entire value chain uh, by providing a, a real entrepreneurship approach so that we can lead the nation, frankly, in the new um, uh, methodologies of building and bringing that building to market. Okay, Evelyn, he mentioned it. Now you get to explain it. What's the <laughs> entrepreneurial approach that is innovative that's coming out of this report? So it is. it all keys on innovation. And so... Uh, there has been no innovation in housing, as Peter mentioned earlier, um, for 100 years. So, But what we've been seeing in the private sector is different ways to build housing that um, is no longer you know, site-built. So you can bring in modular housing um, at a lower cost and faster. So that really allows us to cut that time frame down. But in order to do that, as, as... How about cost? Well, time is money. So if we shorten all of that, it all would... the material and labor costs, is it cheaper that way too? Absolutely. And so, uh, but the problem is, is we have a lot of differences between jurisdictions in terms of what they allow. And so if you are building a house at a factory, you can't get economy of scale if you have to change it for every location that you, you're building for. And so what we recommend is adopting a statewide code, which would uh, allow for some variances. And we've seen other states do this uh, successfully, where they also limit what those variances could be, and they have a whole process around that. But, um, but that would really allow some of these new innovative uh, builders to come in and shorten the process and, and make it cheaper. We've also talked about different, you know, land use changes that we would do. And then one thing I wanted to mention is just that with the uh, federal funding that is coming in through the American Rescue Plan, we really have a once in a, you know, generation uh, time to use some of that funding uh, to really jumpstart housing development here in Colorado. And so that's one of our recommendations is you know, we, we couched it as a, as a demonstration, uh, a pilot project, uh, but it would really um, take some of these ideas like standardized code, a, a grant potentially from the state, and work together as a region to build housing. So there's, that's one of the most important things that I think we came out of this is, you know, we have all the pieces in place. Uh, if we put them together, we can really unlock some of this um, innovation, move forward quickly, which we have to do, and see how, how it works and perhaps be the example for the rest of the country. Okay, I have a couple of follow-ups, Evelyn, if I could. And Peter, you know, jump in if you would. Are, are you talking in code for the money that uh, the Governor Polis has received recently and he said he's going to uh, use $1.5 billion for housing or something like that, if I remember the number reasonably close? Is that is that what you're talking in code about? That, that that's he could correct. use some of that that would help in the affordable housing. Absolutely. So it, it was the American Rescue Plan that that's been passed. The governor did identify a part of that money for housing. There's a second tranche that the legislature has not uh, determined what they would use that funding for, but it is ha- has been allocated to Colorado. So that's to be determined. But absolutely, and we uh, researched. Well, wait, I'm going to stop you there. All of us worry that, okay, they got money. How are they going to use it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's one thing to go, you know, just say, hey, here it is, folks. Good luck. I hope you can afford the housing. We're going to give you money that you can afford something. 
I don't think that's what I hear you saying. Peter, what are you guys saying? Get this money. How would you suggest that the governor use it in light of the project and what you've, your study? Specifically. Yeah, specifically. How would he use it? It's a one-time yeah. chance. Well, we're calling on the governor to create what, what we're calling a, uh, a Colorado Housing Crisis Challenge Grant, which would incentivize local governments to participate in a regional housing development partnership. And as part of that partnership, uh, via a local declaration of emergency, a state of emergency, they could temporarily, because of the crisis, uh, waive their uh, building code and zoning standards and building and building design standards to join together to create one uniform building code, design code, and zoning code then to use and harness the money from the governor, the ARA funding, as we just discussed, so that we're not taxing incrementally any Coloradan, right, and we're not straining any budgets of the local governments, we can really pilot what can, be, what can happen when we start to make investments uh, in off-site improvements, right, infrastructure. We're challenging that every type of development has to pay its own way. We certainly think that the developments that can uh, – Upper market level luxury can pay their own way, but having been and, and developing affordable housing, infrastructure can kill deals, right? And so what we're saying is, is that if we can get to scale, we can drive economies of scale that attack the cost. And we have a what we're calling a deeper dive or a case study of, from the Telluride Foundation that we think folks are really going to be interested. So we're taking things that exist today and we're pushing them to the next level. And so while we know that if not the strongest home rule statue in the country for Colorado, we're certainly darn close. We're asking for narrow surgical home rule uh, or statewide interventions to allow us to try to demonstrate how greater economies of scale can reduce the cost and we can unlock the power and intrinsic power of all of our individual components. As an example, as an architect that we've interviewed and we've spoken with, imagine if as an architect you go from one location to the next and they are both on different building codes. That's startup time, that's opportunity cost time, who gets passed on that cost? The end user, right? So if we can eliminate some of those uh, uh, redundancies that, that create fragmentation and non-replication, we can start to uh, drive down costs and give opportunities for more individuals to enter the space so we can have more competition. Right now, we don't have enough competition in the housing space because it is so fragmented and it is so costly on the front end. In the middle, it's risk. The risk balance here is all on the Coloradan, right? And so what we're asking, as you said before, what we, what we keep saying is the type of housing we have in Colorado is the type of housing that we allow to be built in Colorado. Uh, we're asking our division of housing to step in and be able to provide uh, with our Colorado Housing Finance Authority to create a joint underwriting task force, which would be a pilot to run concurrently, again, uh, to drive down redundancies and create greater efficiencies of scale cost dynamics. We're calling on OEdit to uh, introduce uh, and, and join them in an accelerator grant program because we believe that Colorado could become the preeminent off-site building hub in North America. Okay, Evelyn. So this is what you're suggesting. And as I've often, you know, like to say to folks that I'm involved in, you know, if you're not effective, you know, all your great ideas are not worth a whole lot. So are you meeting with the governor? Are you meeting with others? Have uh, What are your plans that you can be effective with regards to what you're talking about? 
Well, um, we have not met with the governor on this yet. We, we wanted to have Common Sense Institute be the one to unveil it. And so, but we would be happy to. I think, I think it's really important because both Peter and I have done this before. We've, you know, me more on the policy side and, and Peter's got the practical uh, development side. And I think it would, we're, we're both willing to do the trade-offs necessary to, to get this done. And I think that with that perspective, and really, it's just a, um, it's really just to de- a jumpstart what, what could happen in Colorado. And so I think we would be effective. I think we've uh, both worked through uh, political and bureaucratic processes before, and we uh, work with these people. We, you know, I, at, at HUD, I worked with um, the governor's staff, the Department of Housing, DOLA, and OEDIT, actually. So I think that, and Peter obviously works with them as well. So, you know, I think we next thing would be is to sit down with them and see if they're willing to take a chance on some of our ideas. So you write the report, you find out who can help you make certain that the report is thoroughly vetted from a political and a practical viewpoint. Peter? Yeah, and we've been benchmarking these ideas to make sure that our, not not only that our heads are in the clouds, but that our feet can be on the earth as well. So we've been asking experts as part of our stakeholder engagement to make sure that that we weren't creating you know something that was not feasible. Um, we are asking Coloradans and elected officials to to believe that there is an opportunity to advance. And if they're willing to do that and use this demonstration opportunity, uh, we think we can do it. We think we, we know we can do it. We we have the infrastructure, we have the builders, we have we have the talent, we have the will. We just need to uh, you know press the button on go. Well, Peter, you have all of those things, but you didn't mention one thing. Where's the labor force? Well, we, we I'm so glad you asked that. I'm so glad you asked. Are that. Are you really? Yes, okay. absolutely. <laughs> we actually have a deep dive, and we, we there is a there's a lot of. Um, uh, pilot and demonstration programs happening currently. Uh, the um, and if we want to name names, but essentially we go into detail about how we have to revolutionize what it means uh, to be a highly skilled laborer as a Coloradan, and we believe that there are op- great opportunities for that to happen. It won us two world wars. It defined what it means to be an American, great pride in craftsmanship, and it's the reason why I love to build. I can take my two daughters and bring them to a piece of land and then two years, three years later show them uh, you know, what we created. We think that we have the ability to, to unlock additional highly skilled labor. Oh, and by the way, get paid a living wage. You know, The prevailing wage in Colorado uh, for construct- in the construction industry is about 31 bucks, 31 to mid 30 which is above uh, the, the, the standard of living for a family of four here right now. If you happen to be coming home from incarceration, we'll hire you. If you're a woman, we'll hire you, right? So we think there's tremendous upside in construction careers in Colorado, and we would love to see the solutions that are happening currently be scaled uh, because if we have the labor force, we can deliver. As you hit the, on, the, on, the, on the nose and the head, everything can go right, in the, and then the critical path at the end, if you don't have labor, if your subcontractors are not available, you can have cost overruns, and the entire project can blow up. Many of us have had experiences with this. Uh, and so you know, it's a huge part of our report, and we believe it's something that is extremely attainable immediately. Evelyn, not to argue with Peter, but as I uh, understand the issue at the present time is the people aren't available. 
There's there's a lot of uh, I go by construction sites. I hear stories about some uh, construction folks go by a site and offer the laborers on that site two dollars an hour more or three dollars an hour more to come to my site versus staying here. So if you don't have the folks, uh, how are you going to build it, or or how do you create the people? I understand the pride. And I understand how you want to be uh, kind of the best craftsman possible, but help me out. It's a great question, and I think we need to change the narrative on what it means to be a construction-skilled worker these days. So we've seen a lot of emphasis in our society on going to college, uh, getting a four-year degree, and then going on to get your master's, uh, taking on a lot of student debt, and then uh, graduating and not being able to get paid a living wage based on, you know, what you were studying in school. And so I think there's a... So you're saying there are a lot of sociologists that ought to be construction workers? <laughs> well, hey, I was an English literature major. Uh, somehow I made it, but I do see the folly of it sometimes as okay. I'm still paying off my law school loans. Okay. Um, but I, I think that we need to, we really need to change that dynamic. And there's, a, there's a lot of people talking about this, but, and, and this is why we go into the, the, the pride aspect of it, because... We want people to understand that, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to college. College isn't for everybody. And it could be for for, for many people. But there's pride of work in doing this type of, of job. And so if we start changing that now, then we can eventually get to a point where, you know, we have an increase in our labor force. And there are programs that are um, are doing that now. There's, there's some in Colorado that we uh, research that we think are are doing a great job of getting um, kids who are in high school and, you know, getting them through an apprenticeship so they can graduate and hit the ground running. And I think that that is a really valuable program that we would like to see expand and really ready, they're ready to expand in, in Colorado should they get more funding. Well, I must say I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. i don't know about the two of you, but I've enjoyed it, (laughs) and I hope the folks on the podcast listening to it have. I hope the policymakers and community leaders will take note of your insights and recommendations. And obviously, for it to be effective, we have to somehow figure out how they do take note, right? And it's especially important now that policymakers pursue effective strategies in order to prevent allowing these problems to compound further. For more information and to read Peter and Evelyn's full report, please visit our website, www.commonsenseinstitutecode.org. Are there any final words that you dare to present that I may not, that I may feel necessary to challenge you on? <laughs> well, no, I just want to thank you for, uh, for the Common Sense Institute highlighting this, this huge issue in our state. As you can tell, Peter and I are really passionate about the issue. We, we are not just policy wonks. We're, we really want to um, see solutions in, in our communities. And so I think it's great. I, I want people to challenge us. That was the whole premise of our uh, extensive stakeholder outreach is we don't necessarily have all the answers. Uh, so we go back into the community to see uh, what's been pressure tested, what's not. And um, we just were really excited that we could put together some ideas that we think we could, that could work in, in Colorado. 
Yeah, I'll echo those, those sentiments. Thank you to the Institute and, and to our stakeholders for giving us their time and talent. You know, I, I think moving from, you know, from conflict to transformation is going to require us to, to all look at what we're willing to concede within our own factions. Um, we've also created what we call, you know, Colorado Housing Development Guiding Principles uh, so that we can, you know, come together from all different walks of life and viewpoints and really move from, you know, from fear to logic. Um, we have all the component pieces here. Uh, if not us, who, if not now, when. And so um, we hope that folks uh, have some light bulb moments. We hope that folks challenge us, as we've been discussing today, Earl. Uh, and we know that once, as Americans, once we put our mind to something, there's nothing we can't accomplish. And we are adamant that we are in that similar position now. We are across the Rubicon, and uh, we want folks to come with us. Thank you. Peter, Evelyn, it is an absolute joy to have had you on the podcast today, and I think everybody in the podcast can understand why CSI is proud of our fellows, and you certainly are two distinctive fellows that we have the opportunity to hear today, and please, everybody, get the study and do whatever you can to share it with people of influence in the community. You've heard the people mentioned that are influential. Please share the report. Have the conversation. With that, uh, we can all be, I think, prouder about the future what we'll be able to accomplish. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.